Welcome to the FTF Exchange Podcast. This is Maureen Lowe, founder and president of FTF. In this podcast series, we speak with industry professionals from leading financial and technology firms in capital markets. We will discuss an array of topics from current events to the latest fintech updates to human interest stories from time to time. Through these discussions, we strive to foster thought leadership and information sharing, and we certainly welcome comments and feedback for future episodes. If you are interested in participating in one of our podcasts, please reach out to us. Contact info can be found in the notes of this podcast posting. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you for tuning in to another FTF Exchange podcast episode. For this episode, I'm speaking with Kelly Sayers, Senior Managing Director, Head of Polypass at Numerics. Polypass is a provider of analytics and risk management solutions for financial institutions. Numerics acquired Polypass in August of this year. Numerics is a provider of capital markets, technology solutions, and trading and risk management systems. For our chat today, we are going to focus on life after LIBOR, the ripple effects of interest rates and inflation, a bit about structured finance, and machine learning. By the way, the Numerics data management system was voted best data management solution in the FTF News Technology Innovation Awards competition for this year. So Kelly, what attracted you to the complex world of fixed income analytics? Oh, thanks, Eugene. And, and first, it's definitely a pleasure to be here. I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to to chat with you today. Um, in terms of fixed income, I essentially fell into it. I, I actually started at Polypaths two weeks after I graduated college. Uh, I was initially hired to write the user's manual uh, for our fixed income analytical calculations. I thought that I would work at Polypaths for a year, uh, quote, learn fixed income, and then go back to grad school. Little did I know then uh, what a complex and, and constantly evolving industry it is. You know, there's always more to learn as the market changes and new models and frameworks emerge. You know, just as a quick example, when I was hired, the company was quite small. So the two co-founders are the ones that taught me about the market, bond math, etc. During one of those early sessions, one of them showed me on a whiteboard how a mortgage works. He just wrote out, you know, borrower over here, bank in the middle. Here's where Fannie and Freddie come in. This is how you securitize, sell them off to the investor. And suddenly I, I saw all this depth behind this thing I'd known about, you know, a mortgage and had never really given much thought to. You know, I'm not sure what it was, but I was hooked after that. You know, essentially I was never bored coming to work and just really wanted to dig in more deeply every day. So I, I ended up staying 21 years and, and counting and uh, getting my grad degree part-time instead. Wow. Um, so now, how is the acquisition impacting your role at Polypass? It's definitely been an interesting experience. You know, we're, we're 31 people that have joined a now 500-person firm. Uh, it's also a very dynamic time, you know, here at Numerics, as we essentially have three companies, FinCAD, Polypats, and Numerics, all coming together as one. You know, in my role, I'm still the head of product for Polypaths uh, under Numerics, but I now get to work with the other teams here to integrate the systems together and make sure we leverage all our combined skill sets to, to best serve our clients. You know, at Polypaths, we had never had a sales or marketing department, so having access to those resources has been pretty amazing. Um, Numerics also has a global team and global footprint, so that's bought, brought both uh, challenges and opportunities to expand our scope. And 
you know, it's also been a, a bit of a bonding experience just for my polypaths coworkers. Uh, most of us had spent most, if not all of our careers at just one company. You know, on average, we've all been working together for 15 plus years. And we're all going through this interesting transition together and working as a team to uh, take our products to the next level. Sounds exciting. So the clients that you have been servicing are adjusting to a lot of changes within the fixed income trading realm, particularly uh, life after LIBOR and rising interest rates. How are these clients coping with these, these big changes? Yeah, LIBOR cessation has been such a huge industry-wide effort. Um, you know, from what I've seen, most of our clients have been able to rise to the occasion and they were able to meet, you know, both the logistical and, and technical challenges that are associated with this type of migration. I mean, it's it's huge in scale, as you know, it impacts the curve construction, you know, the definitions of instruments, pricing, discounting, what type of data you need to get a daily reset rate, model validation, refitting behavioral models, you know, the list goes on. So some firms still seem to be lagging a bit in overall migration. You know, they haven't necessarily validated all systems to make sure they function without interruption with a complete removal of LIBOR curves and balls. But given the complex uh, ecosystems in terms of technology and software at large financial institutions, it's, it's not surprising. And I do think most folks do seem to be marching steadily toward a uh, clean and robust post-LIBOR framework. Let's hope they get there, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And what would you say is the biggest lesson that they have learned from these major changes? Yeah, it's a great question. I think in one sense, we all took for granted the value of having a single benchmark curve with well-established conventions. Uh, for example, if, you, if you're forecasting mortgage rates, previously the standard method was to leverage one or more underlying swap rates as the driver curve for that forecast. Now folks have to choose, let's say, Treasury, because Treasury correlations are also known. So they can use that for their mortgage rate forecasts and use SOFR for discounting. Um, but now you're dealing with two curves instead of one. Um, SOFR also has so many flavors and conventions. There's different ways to handle the daily reset nature, observation period shifts, or cutoff dates within the accrual period. So it's all resulted in, in a bit of a steep learning curve. As conventions were still getting refined, as banks had already begun the transition. So it's it's sort of a, a looping process uh, that I think we're all finally getting comfortable with. And uh, well, the industry did have to move away from LIBOR because of everything that happened there. Yeah, definitely a necessary change, just um, it, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but certainly right. needed, yes. Yeah. So just to switch gears a little bit, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your clients working in structured products. What are they focusing on? What are their main concerns? Uh, I'm thinking about firms participating in, in markets for asset-backed securities and commercial mortgage-backed securities. Yeah, we've seen a lot of continued focus on being able to do forecasts at the asset level for CMBS. You know, For example, office loans in particular have had a, a challenging year, certainly through September. So a lot of our clients are focused on very granular assumptions, uh, being able to look underneath a deal and focus on a particular type of loan, whether it's retail or office space, you know, student housing versus multifamily rental properties, look at geography, and then be able to make assumptions based on appraisal values, return to work policies, loan size, consumer purchasing power. So a, a common theme across, you know, many of our users has just been data, 
you know, being able to export and see all the assets backing all of the deals in their portfolio and being able to forecast defaults and losses at that level. Um, at the same time, they want to keep track of aggregate metrics, like the percentage of loans that are in special servicing for CMBS or on the watch list, you know, basically getting an indication of, of where default risk lies. In the ABS area, particularly around auto and credit card ABS, I think folks are keeping an eye on increases in household debt levels and just weighing that against the relative health of the economy thus far and whether the soft landing is indeed realized. They're also looking at any impacts from strikes, whether that has an impact on auto production and supply. So in, in both CMBS and ABS, with rates having risen so much, uh, investors and lenders both seem to just be making sure that borrowers are able to service their debt. You know, I think this what-if analysis certainly comes into play here um, for these type of asset level forecasts. And it's an interesting aspect of, of this kind of a financial instrument where it's on one, on the one hand, is that there's an extremely esoteric aspect, and yet it, it it it's it's linked to some very grounded actions, you know, such as you know you mentioned like asset-backed securities being influenced by strikes and and other changes in the industry. So so that I guess that keeps it more interesting. Yeah, there's there's definitely a level of intuition that is sort of nice, right? You can you can look when I go to my office and I I look at the fact that it's relatively empty, you know, it's easy to relate what you see on an everyday basis to what's happening in the, in the securitized market. Okay. uh, I got to pivot again. Uh, Many investment firms have had to add inflation as a risk sensitivity to their investment strategies in the wake of uh, the economic impacts of the global pandemic. So first, how have interest investment firms braced themselves against the ongoing negative impacts of inflation? So inflation can impact many sectors within fixed income. You know, the housing market, of course, um, but also the cost and carry associated with mortgage servicing and just the overall impact on real returns of fixed income portfolios, which are, you know, obviously dampened in a period of high inflation. Uh, So some products that, you know, clients have been looking at more to mitigate that exposure include, you know, tips um, or CPI-linked notes as well as zero coupon inflation swaps. They're also reviewing the duration profile of fixed income portfolios since uh, of course, interest rate risk and inflation risk you know, often go hand in hand. And then finally, I just see users paying more attention to inflation as a risk factor you know, and thinking broadly about how this plays out for consumers and borrowers, how that ripples through to the secondary market and, and all those related effects. Mm-hmm. And how how is the inflation factor changing their modeling and risk management strategies and methodologies? Many of our clients are heavily regulated. So as part of their model governance, they need to actively monitor the effectiveness of their risk factors. Um, And one way they do that is to look at how well their risk factors can explain changes in portfolio values through time. You know, so for example, if you're looking at a bond whose only risk factor was interest rate risk, and you have a starting key rate duration profile for day one, uh, you know how much each point on the yield curve moved from day one to day two, you can use a Taylor expansion and get an estimated PL due to that interest rate movement. Um, but in practice, there's many risk factors driving these changes. So, you know, one challenge of risk management and hedging is to try to capture and manage as many of them as possible. Um, so when you sum up all of your risk factors against the changes in these underlying driver rates, you can, you know, see what percentage of your PNL is explained each day. 
Um, so we were seeing a gap there. You know, inflation was was a risk factor that wasn't being actively monitored and measured. Um, so we have seen some clients adapt that as part of their attribution as well as value at risk framework um, to try to get a better hold of inflation as a, a risk against their portfolio values. So how, how effective are analytics in, in battling inflation? Well, to effectively hedge any risk factor, you first need to be able to measure it. So you know, right now we seem to be at this very interesting pivot point with the, the recent rate pauses by the Fed and you know, a lot of different expectations for what happens longer terms with rates and inflation. So you know, having this on the radar seems key. And I think for the most part, one of the best analytical frameworks is just being able to look across multiple future outcomes. There doesn't seem to be a lot of consensus. So being able to build in future forecasts of rates alongside the different inflation factors, I think will give people a lot of confidence uh, that their hedges can, can hold out regardless of what happens. And yeah, there are people who are making big predictions about what the Fed is going to do, but I think that's it's impossible to, pre- to predict. Mm-hmm. Uh, lastly, I'd like to talk to you about machine learning and pre payment risk models for mortgage-backed securities. So uh, please remind me and our listeners what uh, prepayment risk is. Sure, of course. Uh, So in the United States, most typical mortgages have a 30-year term, uh, but most mortgages don't last that long. You know, the average life is, is typically under 10 years. So this is because the mortgage can be paid off at any time by the borrower, often without any penalty. And this uh, prepayment, um, so scheduling paying down the mortgage ahead of the loan schedule maturity um, could generally occur for for one of three reasons, Um, turnover, refinance, or curtailment. Uh, Turnover occurs when a borrower sells their house, so the mortgage gets paid off as a result. Uh, Refinance occurs when a borrower enters into a new loan, sometimes with their current lender, sometimes with another one, but at more favorable terms. Um, So this is often what people think of in terms of prepay risk, since this is rate-driven. You know, let's say rates are at seven and a half percent and rates drop to five percent. I can refinance my loan at a lower rate to reduce my monthly payment. There's a the third category I mentioned, which is typically the smallest factor. Um, that's curtailment. So this is the borrower paying off all or part of the mortgage ahead of schedule by either sending in extra principal payments uh, or maybe a lump sum payment if they have a windfall or, or some other event. But regardless of the cause, the option to prepay the loan lays with the borrower. So that means investors are short that option. Um, and because of that, MBS has negative convexity. Um, and that's you know mainly the embedded prepayment risk causing that. So what kind of a role is machine learning playing in this prepayment process? So modeling prepayment is, is extremely complex due to the large number of risk factors. If you're you know trying to estimate prepays, you look at geography, you look at loan and borrower characteristics like a borrower's credit rating, the loan-to-value ratio, the size of the loan, uh, the type of property. And then you also have to put that alongside economic factors, interest rates, unemployment, home prices. Um, So, you know, at its core, the prepayment option is not rationally exercised, right? These are individual borrowers that have to have the incentive to refinance, but also the ability and the appetite to go through the trouble. Um, so as a result, it's it's a lot of nonlinear, interactive, sometimes idiosyncratic behaviors that you, you have to try to model. Um, and so in traditional models, you come up with a set of basis functions that relate the underlying factors to what would happen for prepay and loss. Um, 
And on the flip side, with machine learning and neural net models, uh, you could start with data instead. So you essentially let these functions be discovered by the model, typically based on a very large data set of historical prepayment experience on a, a large set of mortgages. So these, these type of neural net models are generally well-suited um, to this type of high dimension problem with idiosyncratic behavior. Um, and it, it essentially can shift the prepay model construction to be computationally intensive rather than a uh, human labor intensive. So machine learning helps with prepayment and it's, it almost is a reflection of the intuition you mentioned earlier. Yeah, I think they can be very good at fitting, you know, large amounts of data and capturing these strange behaviors across attributes. You know, we certainly have some clients that leverage AI and, and neural nets in their models. Um, but one thing to keep in mind is that they are very computationally intensive models that can take uh, an enormous amount of time and memory. So while they do a great job at precise fitting, um, it often comes at the cost of reduced transparency and tractability that you have in a traditional parametric model. So for example, model tuning, um, is a very common exercise in the mortgage space or being able to stress uh, a particular underlying factor. Um, and sometimes that's a little harder to do these uh, machine learning neural net models. You know, if something in the future happens that has not occurred in the past, if you understand your model very well and you understand the underlying functional forms, you could potentially layer in some intuitive tuning so you can adjust parameters as needed. Um, this came up with COVID. There were these forbearance programs that were quickly introduced to keep stability in the housing market. And model tuning was key for a lot of our clients to be able to quickly incorporate these longer delinquency timelines, payment plans, and, and so on. Um, another example is being able to layer in future outcomes for CPI, like we talked about before, or, or home price changes. So you do want to have a model that you, you understand how it's going to react if an underlying factor changes. But that said, it's also not all or nothing. I think neural nets can be extremely useful for short-term forecasting and, and very valuable tools in the hands of both servicers and investors. Um, it's just that, as with any modeling framework, you want to make sure these models are not used in a vacuum and are subject to human review and intervention. You, know, you want to keep in mind what data the model was trained on, test out of sample data, test across different time periods, and uh, importantly, run sensitivity analysis to just shock input factors and, and make sure the, the model results make sense. Great. This has been a great discussion. Thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the FTF Exchange podcast. If you would like a turn in the hot seat, reach out to us at info at ftfnews.com and let us know what capital markets topics you'd like to discuss. Also, be sure to sign up to receive our email alert so you don't miss out on listening to future episodes. Just visit ftfnews.com and click the sign up link at the top of the page. Thanks again for listening to the FTF Exchange Podcast. Mm -hmm.